You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hi guys, um, welcome to tonight's program with Inform at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Marisa Lagos. I am a politics correspondent at KQED and co-host of the Political Breakdown podcast, which my guest has been on. Um, joining us tonight is Congresswoman and Presidential Candidate Eric Swalwell. Another round of applause. Congressman Swalwell is an East Bay Democrat and a fixture in Bay Area politics, first elected to Congress at the age of 31 after winning an upset primary contest against a 40-year Democratic incumbent. He's one of the youngest candidates running for the Democratic nomination, and at 38, if elected, would be the youngest president in American history. Congressman, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, Marisa. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. So um, I wanted to start with... The, the state that everyone's looking at, which is Iowa. And you were born there. I was born there. Um, is that why you're running for president? <laughs> By accident, <laughs> I happen to be born uh, in Iowa. In Iowa. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I, I do think, seriously, you probably bring a different sort of point of view than somebody who maybe spent their whole life in California. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you're running and kind of what you feel like you bring to this race? Yeah, and thank you to the, the Commonwealth Club for... Uh, bringing me back, and thank you to each and every one of you uh, who, just like me, is missing the premiere of Secret Life of Pets 2 tonight. <laughs> I would only miss that for the Commonwealth Club. Uh, but uh, born in Iowa, educated in the South, married to a Hoosier from Southern Indiana, elected to a diverse part of California. I've seen this country. I think I know why people work hard and what they expect it to add up to. And I'm living, you know, in part, a lot of that struggle today as a father of a two-year-old and a seven-month-old. We fight insurance companies. We're paying off my student loan debt. We worry about being safe in our communities. And I think you need an advocate in the White House who lives like that and gets those issues and can be an advocate with their own experience to bring solutions. What's it like running with a seven-month-old? That it's seems not, really challenging. It's not easy. Uh, we've been to the ICU in the last couple months oh. for you know, a respiratory virus. And every young parent, you, know, you freak out. You go to the you know, emergency room, and you get to see... Spend it, 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 yeah, like 12 hours. We spent a couple days there. Um, that was rough. And, but when you are in Congress and raising a young family, I think it actually gives you a perspective of what other families... Uh, are going through. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, when we were at the ICU uh, most recently, uh, we were in you know, one of those areas where you know, there's three different beds and there's a curtain that separates you know, each bed. And in one of the beds uh, was a young girl. She was about one to two years old. And my wife was getting really anxious because she didn't see the young girl's parents. Mm. And she kept asking the nurses, like, where are her parents? Why aren't they coming and seeing her? Because we were there for a couple of days and we didn't really see the parents that much. And the nurses finally said, you know, we, we can't tell you much about another patient. Just know they, they love her, but they have, they're working. Like, they can't afford to miss work. We learned that that young girl had uh, meningitis of the brain. I mean, a very serious condition. But in our country, I mean, healthcare costs are so expensive. And not a lot of employers are able to offer, you know, like an extended paid leave while your kid is sick. So we, we've seen up close and personal you know, the best and too often the worst of our healthcare system. And it's a responsibility to, you know, want to do something about it. All right. Well, I wasn't going to jump in this fast with policy, but since we're in yeah. healthcare, let's talk about healthcare. Yeah. Um, I know that you support a universal option, not necessarily single payer. Talk about that. And, and what has this experience having these kids and seeing this, you know, informed in terms of what you think the public wants? Yeah. And so I've thought a lot about this, you know, and I've heard pretty good arguments about you know, a, a single-payer system and, and what that could do and make sure every single person has health care and you know, the government provides it for everyone. But in the last two years, I, I went to 26 states uh, helping out to win the midterms and going to places where we had to win, like Texas and Oklahoma and Iowa. And I learned a lot about our country and you know, what makes us American. And I, I think a, a centerpiece of that uh, is choice uh, and wanting to have the freedom of choice. And that's just in our DNA. And so 
giving thought to you know, what we, we could have as the best healthcare system, recognizing that we like choice. Well, to me, that's a government responsibility to have a public option, but also allowing people, if they want to have private insurance or if their union provides a, a good you know, private insurance plan, let them make that choice. But the government, because this issue is so big that the private sector can't solve it on its own, the government has uh, an increased responsibility to provide affordable, accessible plans that don't charge you more for having a pre-existing condition. I mean, that puts you at odds with some of the people you're running yeah. against who, quite frankly, are polling a lot higher yeah. than you are. Um, and, you know, to some extent with, I think, the Democratic electorate, which is sort of the first group of folks you got to convince, are you... How do you think of yourself in relation to the field? It's yeah. very crowded. Um, I don't know. Do you see yourself as too more moderate than, yeah. say, a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren? Um, more liberal than a Joe yeah. Biden? Like, where, where are you? I, you know, I, I consider myself aspirational. I think a lot of these problems, you know, can be solved. And we don't have to root against the success of any person in this country. We should just expect that, you know, those that are better off have a responsibility to make sure that this economy works for everyone. And so backing up, when I, when I talk to folks across the country, and, and I, again, I'll just be honest, like I was, once I made this decision that I, I was not in favor of single payer, I wanted you know, to have a public option, still have private insurance. I was afraid that you know, when I would say that, you, know, you would get boos or people would say, have no, we want single payer. No. Huh. You know what it is, honestly? People just want to know that you recognize how expensive it is and you don't think the status quo is working. And that's what I've seen in Iowa and New Hampshire and, you know, the early primary states. They just want to know that you get that this is not working. It's eating up their paychecks. They're paying too much for prescription drugs and that you have a plan that's going to have them spend less. And I don't think they're going to punish anyone that acknowledges how hard it is right now and has a plan to make it easier and more affordable. Well, talking about the field, we, um, you found out today the yeah. uh, where where you'll be on yeah. the debate stage in a yeah. couple of weeks. You're going to be um, on the second night yeah. with a pretty sort of all star cast, including yeah. Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris. Um, Pete Buttigieg is on yeah. the stage. Joe Biden. You know, how do you want to sort of differentiate you, yourself from this crowd, given where you're at in the polls, yeah. and and again, just like how yeah. much time there is between now and the primaries. You know, as someone who is always like the last one to board a plane because we're like running late, I've come to learn that even if you're the last one to get on the plane, you're still on you the all plane. get there at the same time. <laughs> so we've made we've made the debate stage. So I've, I have an opportunity uh, to make my case, and my hope is that the country, uh, you know, as this process plays out. Uh, they see a, a generational candidate uh, who fights health insurance companies when the surprise bills comes, who pays student loan debt, uh, who worries about his kid's safety at school, and that the only way to solve those issues is to have a, a page forward, someone who's living that right now and has solutions for that right now. But also that they see someone who has experience in Congress, and you're not rolling the dice on someone who's inexperienced because we're living and paying the consequences for that right now. I've been you know, on the House Intelligence Committee. I've met with foreign leaders. I've gone to the war zones. I've taken the classified briefings. Like, I'll, I'll be ready, you know, on day one to, you know, restore, you know, a lot of what has had a wrecking ball taken to it. But I don't think I have to, you know, swing for the fences or, uh, you know, be too extra right. up there. I think I just have to be myself and, and put my vision out there with the credibility of the experience I have. Well, I mentioned at the top, you know, this is not the first time you've kind of taken on an uphill battle yeah. in an in electoral race. Um, I was reading back, you told the Chronicle that when you first decided to challenge Pete Stark, um, who was a 20-term congressman, elected before you were born, someone told you there's a ladder for these sorts of yeah. things and you're not even a rung. Yeah. Um, this is a dem somebody in yeah. democratic politics. And that you, was something that was printable. Do you, yeah. do you, want, do you want to tell us who that was now? <laughs> but I, I wonder, I mean, do you feel parallels between that race and this one, or is it a totally different animal? Totally different animal. The best piece of advice I was given was... Do not in any way project any lesson that you learned from that race onto this one. Like, don't think that because you, you know, won under those circumstances that you're going to win now. And that was the same person who told me at my inauguration, uh, when I was sworn in to my first term, uh, this person said to me, this past race was nothing about you. It was entirely about the incumbent. So don't think that you're something special. Now you have to prove to the voters that you, can you, know, do you worked hard and earned it. And so 
for me, it really is looking at this completely differently. This, this is really, I think, a, a, about who we are as a country and where do we want to go. And we have an opportunity, uh, I believe, not to just aim so low to beat you know, a, a lawless president who runs a top-floor economy, but we have an opportunity to challenge the country to take on big issues, to you know, solve the student debt crisis, to not just have a coverage plan, but to invest in cures in our lifetime uh, through innovation and see that as a way to bring down costs, to end gun violence and believe that you know, this is not something that we should have to live through uh, every single day and that we're capable uh, of putting big solutions forward and making ourselves safer in our community. So I, I really believe uh, that this is a generational election and it's going to take a generational leader to take us forward. But you also just said that like, you felt like that first race was more about Pete Stark than about you. And I yeah. think that's something Democrats are really sort of grappling with right now. How much to make 2020 about Trump? How much to make it about their ideas and the sort of, are you against something? Are you for something? I mean, where do you stand on that? And, and, and how, like, how are you going to approach that question? Yeah, well, I don't think anyone's questioned you know, my ability or passion to hold the president accountable. And I think that's rooted in being the son of a police officer and seeing my dad know right from wrong his whole life and, and really believing in a, a system yeah, of justice. You want to talk about that? Uh, and, and, and then also just being, you know, a prosecutor in Alameda County and, and, and believing that, you know, we have a rule of law for a reason. And so I, I don't think you can ignore the president. And I, I get why some candidates just don't want to talk about him at all. But, I mean, these are extraordinary times, and we can't just like, cover our ears and say, you know, this isn't happening, this isn't happening, this isn't happening. This is happening. Like, th this is, th he's risking the republic with what he does every single day. And I'm not afraid to say, yeah, I've got scars from being in the arena and being in this fight, but it's because I care so much about what the rule of law means for all the freedoms we enjoy, free markets, free speech, and the freedom to dream. And, you know, I, if that's not a winning path, then that's fine. But I, I think this democracy is worth saving and worth calling out the person uh, who's risking it. So you yeah. give him a round of applause, guys. <laughs> so you brought up your dad. Yeah. Um, full disclosure, I know Eric is Swalwell going. is a Democrat and a family yeah. of Republicans. Yeah. We can get to that in a little bit. But your, your dad has a really interesting story from when yeah. you were very young. Yeah. Um, he was a police chief in Iowa, yeah. and he was fired. Tell yeah. us what happened and, and like what you learned from that. It was really my earliest memory. My mom and dad, when I was five years old, uh, anxious and fretting about my father about to be fired. And, and honestly, I, I remember it. It sticks out because I just heard the word fire. And you think about your dad, and you think, like, he's going to be in a fire. Like, that's bad. <laughs> I later learned from my dad that he came to this town of Algona, Iowa, as a very young police chief in his early 30s. And my mom was born in South Dakota. She had family in the area. He had been a police officer in Alameda County, got injured, wanted to go back into police work, and found this job in Iowa. And he brought the 911 system there. They didn't have 911. He started the Boys and Girls Club and the Mothers Against Drunk Driving chapter. And the DUI arrests in the town went from like four the year that he was not there to 40 this first year there. And as he says, it wasn't because they developed a drinking problem. Like they started enforcing the law. And a lot of people in this small town, uh, in a good old boys network, as he would call it, they just didn't like that. Mm. And so it came to a head. And this is in, in very typical. This is very like small town, town Iowa yeah, fashion at the county fair. <laughs> My dad gets a, a phone call from the fire chief and the fire chief says, sir, we have parked in the fire lane the mayor and, the city, and a city council member, and they won't move their cars. They said they can park wherever they want. I knew how this story was going to end as soon as my dad started to tell me once I was older because I've lived under his strict rules. <laughs> he told the fire chief, if they don't move, you have to ticket and you have to tell them. They wouldn't move. And at the very next council meeting, the mayor told my dad, and this is a public open meeting, you have to reverse those tickets or you're going to be fired. And so... He refused. This played out for a couple months, and he was fired. And we picked up our little family, and we moved out west. And honestly, I always thought my dad had you know, told the story in the light most favorable to him, like as we all often do yeah. you know, in our own stories. But when I went back to Iowa in 2016 for the you know, 2016 election, uh, working on campaigns there, I looked up the Des Moines Register uh, archives and the Algona Times uh, 
archives and they really covered the story is he was fighting against so everyone knew yeah it oh like it was it was covered in the state and there are des moines register uh, reporters who remember it who are still there and they covered it as like he was you know he was trying to clean up this town and it, it was corrupt and he paid the price and um it taught me that whether you're the chief of police of whether you're the, it taught me whether you're the mayor of Algona, Iowa, or the president of the United States, no one's above the law. And that was a good lesson to learn as a five-year-old, not knowing then that I would later go on the Judiciary Committee uh, and have to answer you know, these questions about you know, what, is, you know, ex- what is acceptable and what is not uh, for our leaders. What was your dad's reaction when he became a Democrat? They blamed it on my high school teacher, you know, Republicans like, oh, it's te- liberal teachers, they're brainwashing the kids. Um, it, it was a, a high school teacher who uh, got me involved in campaigns. And, and when I was in high school, I saw pretty early on that soccer was my path to being the first in our family to go to college. So I just latched on to anything soccer. And, and I would do private lessons uh, on the side. I would give private lessons to younger kids to pay for my own private lessons. I would referee, like anything to pay for specialty coaching so I could get better, go off to college on a scholarship. And it, it, it worked, it paid off. But this teacher uh, who was my like, leadership advisor, economics teacher, he got me, you know, he, he offered extra credit if we went and worked on a campaign, uh, a local city council campaign. It, it just so happened that the only campaign that he had contact information for was a local Democrat. Uh, so maybe there's a little truth yeah, to your dad's yeah, yeah. Uh, argument? So, that seeded an interest, but I went to college, I played soccer, got injured, and it was this high school teacher who told me the world is not ending. Mm. Uh, you, can, you should apply to an internship in Washington, D.C., see if that's something you're inter- in- interested in. Uh, and I went there, and I worked for Congresswoman Ellen Tauscher. Uh, and that was really where I started to turn. And uh, yes, Ellen uh, passed away uh, just last month, and she was also a good model uh, of, of someone to work for. I've been blessed. I, I've worked uh, for or alongside uh, with three uh, very, uh, I would say, three very inspiring women. Uh, Ellen Tauscher, Nancy O'Malley, the first woman DA in Alameda County uh, who hired me, uh, and, uh, you know, alongside Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. So it, it, it's paid off, uh, you know, having strong women <laughs> as advisors and mentors. Yeah. <laughs> So after you stopped playing soccer, you did this internship and then you transferred right to the University of Maryland. Um, and you, that was actually your real entrance to politics, right? To elected office on the city council there. How does a college student get on a city yeah. council? <laughs> <laughs> we were really good at sports in 2001, 2002 at, at Maryland. And the problem, though, was that we got really excited about being really good at sports. And so every football game win or basketball game win... The students would essentially riot. (laughs) It wasn't, I mean, it got out of control. And so there was this tension that was building between the people who lived in College Park, Maryland, and the students. And the the residents wanted really strict rules, they wanted curfews, and the students were just getting worse and worse and, you know, not respectful of the residents. I went to UC Santa Barbara. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. 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 Uh, Del Playa. Yeah. Yeah. I saw an opportunity to work between the residents and the students. I was already on, the, uh, on student government. Uh, and so I went to the city council and asked them. I saw no student could ever win a seat on the council because they, they drew the lines in a way that they drew around every area the students l- lived in so they never had a majority anywhere. So I asked the council members if they would work with me to create a student position uh, where I could go to every meeting, I could speak on every agenda item, I could get all the briefing materials Recognizing I wouldn't be elected, I wouldn't have a vote, but I would always be asked how I would vote. And I figured that seat at the table would at least allow me to be a voice for the students and build a partnership with the council. And we were able to get that done. And, and I served as the first uh, you know, student liaison on the council. And the first initiative I worked on was community college, uh, was community cleanup days. So 
Sunday mornings after all the parties, I got the fraternities and sororities who needed, you know, civic credits, you know, to fulfill their okay, requirements. I was going to ask if you had any friends left yes. after this. Yeah, exactly. Like- so we would all just be dragging out there at, you know, 7 a.m., 8 a.m., cleaning up the mess that, you know, everyone had made the night before. But it showed, it, it engendered goodwill with the community because they saw the students, you know, caring about the streets uh, that they had, you know, dirtied yeah. the night before. And, you know, it was just something small like that, but it got me... Uh, involved locally. Did you, at that age, kind of, you know, dealing with folks, I assume, who are far older than you on the council, um, and then when you came to Congress, you were only, like, what, 31? Was that, did you, did you have any, like, lessons that you could apply there, or were were there any similar dynamics? When you go to Congress at 31, the first job they give you is IT help desk. (laughs) (laughs) So. Like, like, how do you tweet? (laughs) Yes. How, you know, what is this Instasnap or tell me about Facegram? Um, and I embraced that uh, and helped a lot of my colleagues, you know, set up their social media accounts. Democrats and Republicans or yeah. just Democrats? No, okay. and, and I, I worked with, you know, Republicans on it and, and would do, you know, social media uh, events or, you know, just some, sometimes when there's sports contests, you know, we'd have fun with rival, you know, communities on, on social media. But what I encourage my colleagues to do with technology was I told them, you be you. Mm. First takes only. So if, if you're talking to your Insta story or you're, ta- you're doing Facebook Live and you, you know, stutter over something or screw up, don't delete it. Just Keep going. be you. Be how normal. Many, how many people in Congress do you think actually run their own Twitter feeds? I, I don't think it's that many. Yeah. Um, and that's probably for a good reason. Right. Um, I, look, I send tweets that I regret later, or I think maybe that wasn't as important as it should be. Your press guys on the front. Yeah, they're nodding. They're nodding. Um, They would love to change my passwords. (laughs) I'm on the intelligence committee, so, you know, I'm one step ahead of them on that. Uh, It's good to have skills. All right, well, let's back up. You went to law school. Um, Did you want to become a prosecutor at the time? Okay. My my dad always told me, uh, just growing up, that his dream, he wanted to be a prosecutor because he was a police officer and he would take his cases to court and he really just admired the work that prosecutors did in the courts and working on behalf of victims and bringing justice, but he didn't go to college and that was never an opportunity for him. I would always, just to piss him off, threaten to be a public defender. I knew that was like, (laughs) that was the fastest way to like really get him fired up. Uh, but it, it truly was um, something he he exposed me to, and and your brothers in law enforcement. My, I have right. two brothers who are Alameda County uh, deputy sheriffs, and you know, working in the Alameda County DA's office, you know, if you think about some of those points, those inflection points in your life where like your life really took a, a different direction, I, I remember where I was. I was at an Applebee's uh, in uh, Maryland, and my parents had called me and told me that the Alameda County District Attorney's Office had sent a letter to their home when I was in my second year of law school. And they they opened it and they read it to me and it said I had been accepted for the summer law clerk program, which was a you know the, the way that you get hired after law school as a prosecutor. And I knew that at that point like that things were going to change because mm-hmm. you know that was a it was a very respected office. It was the job I wanted. I'd gotten a lot of rejection letters from places that I didn't even really want to work at. Mm. Uh, and so I, I thought that's not a good sign. Uh, and the only job I wanted was to work in the county where my dad had worked as a police officer and where he had hoped that one day his son could. And that's where I knew things were you know, going to change and that like the hard work had added up and was starting to pay off. Do you ever feel like coming from that law enforcement background it, that it does put you at odds with your colleagues, the Democratic electorate. I mean, we've seen in California a real sea change around criminal justice and the reforms over the past decade. Um, And quite frankly, prosecutors have been among the last to come along, sometimes after police. Like, is that, I don't know, like how do those, how do you think about those things now that you've kind of done that and then moved on to a policy uh, position? You know, one thing I really enjoyed about the prosecutor's role was that you, you didn't have to try a case if you couldn't prove it. And you didn't have to send every person to jail. Like you were able to show mercy and, and give people, you know, diversion uh, plea agreements where they, you know, could, you know, find redemption or, you know, take a class or get skills or get treatment. And I, and I would always try and do that 
as often as I could. I saw the shortcomings of our criminal justice system. I saw, you know, the over uh, policing of, uh, you know, drug crimes and that we didn't have a way, you know, to really address addiction and provide services. Uh, I, I saw, frankly, when I was 19 years old, um, that a white person in America gets a different criminal justice system. And, and I, I had come home on Christmas break and a friend of mine was working at a department store at the Stone Ridge Mall and I was Christmas shopping for my family. He offered me a discount that I definitely did not, was not entitled to. I took it and like he had done this apparently for all of our friends and I was just the last one that they were like finally onto it. Mm -hmm. So he and I both got arrested. And I remember the look on my dad's face when he came to the mall to pick me up and he was just crushed. I mean, he was like... How old were you? 19. Okay. And he was just like, everything that you're trying to do is over. I mean, he was, I mean, he saw the worst in it. Like this, this is over. Like you're not going to be able to go to law school like you want to. And they didn't have money for me to, you know, get a lawyer and, but they took out a loan. He found, you know, a lawyer who would take my case and, and I was able to get, you know, a probation agreement where I stayed away from the mall. I went to a theft awareness class. I didn't get in trouble again. And then four years later, I got to sit in the same prosecutor's chair in the same courtroom where I was prosecuted. And I saw that for so many young black kids or black men, I mean, a lot of times it was teenagers, a lot of times it was young men, it was just a different criminal justice system. They didn't have the resources, even though it sunk my parents to find a lawyer, they, that wasn't even an option right. uh, for their families. And a lot of the times, they, they pick up a, a very minor case and because of a lack of structure in like the communities where they live with not very good schools, not very good jobs, they just fail to appear. And then a warrant goes out and they get arrested again. And it's just like a hole that they fall into and they can never get out of. And so I saw it's, it's definitely two criminal justice systems that we have, but that's a structural issue that a, a prosecutor's office can't fix. You know, the only thing that can fix that is to make sure that, you know, one, I think, as Americans, we address the original sin in our country of slavery uh, and what that has done to dehumanize, especially black men. Uh, and, you know, as I've seen, like how they uh, view themselves, because we've never, I think, made that right. Uh, second, the generational suffering that these communities have gone through in a lack of opportunity, a lack of investment in schools and jobs. I would go through West Oakland as a prosecutor to find witnesses, and you'd see that it was payday lenders and liquor stores all around, the piercing sound of police sirens, always not too many blocks away, and the crumbling infrastructure of the schools where the best technology was an overhead projector. And like we failed those communities. And so I actually think my experience as a prosecutor and seeing that uh, and working as a member of Congress and knowing what we can do structurally to fix that you know, would, would serve and benefit minority communities. What would you like to see if you were president done? I mean, we've had the, you know, reparations have come up in this yeah. race, several other candidates. Um, I think that there's been some bipartisan interest yeah. in some criminal justice reform on the national level. I mean, what do you think sort of are the first steps that need to happen from an executive level? First invest in the communities that need help now. Uh, I, I support a reparations commission to you know, look at the best way to make the African-American community whole. But I see that a black student, a black student today pays about $10,000 more in student loan debt than a white student. A black family uh, pays more for health care than a white family. And the number one cause of death for a black child in America today is gun violence. That's not the number one cause of death uh, for a white child. And so I, I think it's, it's investing immediately uh, in those communities. I, so I was in the south side of Chicago a couple weeks ago uh, in this neighborhood called Englewood. And I, m I met with a woman named Tamar Manassa, and she has taken over a couple blocks and told me that the kids don't even go to school because they don't feel safe on the journey to school because it's, it's so dangerous. So she's found some of these condemned corner lots, or she's found some of these corner lots and had them condemned and has brought storage containers to them and has set up these pop-up kitchens and pop-up classrooms essentially to create a sense of community and she told me that she recently hosted a, she recently had a second chance prom and she said a lot of these kids got expelled from school or kicked out of school and she wanted them to have a prom so they got to know each other and would respect each other 
And she said that a lot of them told her that they'd never worn a suit before in their life and they only expected to wear one when they were in the box. That's what they told her. And to me, that represents the hopelessness in so many of America's cities. And I support background checks for firearms. I support an assault weapons ban. But that's not going to solve the, the structural issue of hopelessness and a lack of investment. Uh, and I, I think because I went to law school you know, in Baltimore, because I've worked as a prosecutor in Oakland, uh, these communities are not invisible uh, to me. I want to stay with gun control for a second because that is something that you've really made a centerpiece of your campaign and I think is yeah. unique to your campaign. Um, talk about this buyback program. Like, What's yeah. the idea here? What would it cost? Um, and how would it work? Yeah, it's not my idea to <laughs> ban and buy back assault weapons. The Australians uh, are decades ahead of us on this. Uh, they had a mass shooting in the 90s and immediately conservatives and liberals in that country uh, banned and bought back 700,000 assault weapons. They've had nothing close to the uh, shooting tragedy they had where they lost over 30 uh, lives. I went to Congress when Sandy Hook happened. And as awful as that was, I had hoped that it was an opportunity to be a part of a place where we could do something about it. Nothing happened. Then there was Charleston. Nothing. San Bernardino. Nothing this carousel that we just went on of Orlando, Sutherland Springs, Texas, Las Vegas, nothing, nothing, nothing. And I saw that we would go through the cycle of grief and loss and anger and then thoughts and prayers in Washington yeah. as an alibi for doing nothing. And it wasn't until Parkland happened that hope was restored on this issue because hope died at Parkland in many ways. The children that were gunned down, athletic director that was killed, but through the strength and courage of the students and their parents, hope was reborn there. And they picked themselves up and they organized and they marched. They joined groups like the Giffords organization and the Brady foundation and moms demand action and community groups in the cities and they beat 17 NRA-endorsed members of Congress. And, when I and so many others were about to give up, they gave us hope. And they showed me that we don't have to fear the NRA, and that we actually could negotiate up instead of down. Because after Sandy Hook, we went for background checks, and the NRA and the Republicans said no. After Orlando, we had the crazy idea that if you're on the terrorist watch list, you shouldn't be able to buy a gun. <laughs> they said no to that. And after Las Vegas, we said, well, if you take a semi-automatic assault rifle and convert it to a fully automatic assault rifle with a bump stock, like, we should ban that device. And they wouldn't even give us a vote on that. And these groups told me that you're going in the wrong direction that the floor is background checks. But we should also ban assault weapons. We should also invest in gang violence prevention programs. We should, for God's sake, study gun violence and understand the causes of it uh, and, and fund uh, the solutions. And so, in part, I'm running for president because I believe the country wants a president who's going to be offensive in the way that we take this on rather than just defensive in responding to the last shooting. What do you... You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. One argument I've heard from some people around the yeah. buybacks and um, some of these things is like, well, the cat's out of the bag. There's too many guns yeah. out there. We could mm -hmm. never do what some place like Australia did. Yeah. You know, only the bad guys would, would keep the weapons. Make the case for like why that's not, why you don't think that those are valid arguments. I've heard that argument too. That, that gives me relief. Uh, and I was in Allen Park, Michigan uh, about a year-ish or so ago. And it was right before I wrote an op-ed 
in USA Today proposing a ban and a buyback. And I wanted, it, it was a basement party, and I don't know if anyone's ever been to the Detroit suburbs, but you know, there's like basements are like the center of the community. And so it was a basement town hall, essentially. And the person who hosted it for me invited all of our neighbors with one condition. You had to have voted in the last election, and it had to be also the first political event you'd ever been to. So it was Republicans, Democrats, Independents, in a state where kids get the day off when hunting season opens. So I mean, they value yeah. you know, their right yeah. to hunt. And so I made the case for a ban and a buyback, and I was ready you know, to brace for impact. <laughs> and it was just crickets. And finally, one guy raised his hand, and he said, yeah, I... I I get what you're saying. I don't really have a problem with it. But he said exactly what you said. He said, I just think this problem has gotten too big for us to solve. And when he said that, I said, I, will, I can work with that. Because I'm, I'm in this to solve the unsolvable. Like, if, if you think government can't do it, like, I want to find a way to do it. You're not telling me, like, it is my God-given right to have, you know, a weapon that shoots dozens of rounds, you know, in a minute uh, that would never be used for hunting, only used to mow down people. I need to have that gun. He wasn't saying that at all. He just said the problem's gotten too big to solve. So it was, it was hopelessness. I can work with that. Hmm. What I found is that the people who are against this are a very vocal, tweeting, bullying minority. And that the NRA has led us to believe that addressing this issue is a divisive tactic. It is, 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 sorry, that addressing this issue is a divisive, like, hot stove that you don't touch. And that's a tactic. Because like just if, making they, a third if, rail. if we think that you're going to pay a political price for doing something about this, then we're not going to touch it, and they win. But I'll, I'll tell you, Marissa, I've, I've gone, as I said, to 26 states in the last two years. I've been on the road you know, since I've you know, announced this run for president all over the country. People come up to me about every imaginable issue. All of the haters that I see and, and read on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram who have like they're holding an assault rifle as their profile picture, like we shouldn't be concerned about that person. <laughs> they never show up in my face. People come to me and they disagree with me on a lot of things, but not on that issue. And I just think that they have used this, they're a paper tiger, and we shouldn't be afraid of them. But then why aren't your Democratic colleagues in more red or purple states on board with that? I mean, I don't think we've seen, yeah. even when Democrats controlled both houses, that kind of action. I think we're at the tipping point, though. I think Parkland was in part the tipping point. And winning 17, beating 17 NRA-endorsed incumbents, particularly in Oklahoma, Texas, Iowa, Kansas, I hope that gives my colleagues the courage to know that the moms are going to have your back. And you better worry about pissing off the moms more than pissing off the NRA. Yeah. So this is a question from the audience. I think a good one. Do you think the Second Amendment is an absolute right? No. You want to expand? Or no. I, yeah, I, <laughs> but you, I mean, you're yeah. not calling for an overturning of the Second no, Amendment here. No, I, I was at a shooting range a couple weeks ago. Uh, I did a, a veterans town hall. I, you know, just a, an aside, I've been trying to find a way to engage our veterans community uh, for a long time. And they came to me and said, we're, we're having a hard time getting younger veterans to come and you know, sign up for the services that we could provide them. And I was running through the list of what I thought would be fun to do. I said, A's game. They said, did it. I said, happy hour. They're like, we've tried it. Bowling. They're like, no one showed up. And I finally asked these guys, I said, I said, be honest with me. Like, what do you guys like to do? And one guy who knew I was, you know, really felt really strongly about guns. He said, sir, we we like to shoot. I said, let me call the sheriff. He has a range. He likes to hire veterans. And the sheriff of Alameda County Do opened up his range. you still learn how to shoot again to be a prosecutor? When I was a prosecutor, we would go out it to the range to yeah. learn uh, you know, how to explain a firearm to jurors. Because to prove intent that it wasn't an accident, you, you would have to understand. explain the, pre- the pounds of pressure to pull the trigger, etc. So I was out a couple weeks ago with veterans. I brought Shannon Watts, who was just here a couple nights ago. She came with me. And here you had veterans, some of them NRA members, the founder of Moms Demand Action. We're all at the shooting range. She's firing off rounds. I'm shooting. We're all having fun. And none of us disagreed on what we had to do. 
keep your rifles, keep your pistols, keep your shotguns. Let's just take the most dangerous weapons from the most dangerous people. All right. So I want to talk about what it's like to be in Congress. Um, you know, when you ran in 2012, your pitch was being a new voice, yeah. having new energy, I think similar to what you're talking about in your presidential run. But then you get to D.C. And, um, you know, I think reality sets in yeah. a little bit. What, I guess to start with, like, did you appreciate the value of incumbency and, and, and maybe age and wisdom a little <laughs> bit more once you got there? Certainly, yes, uh, of, of course. Uh, and I respect people who've been working on some of these issues for a really long time. And, you know, as a prosecutor, I thought justice took a long time, you know, to come. Boy, in Congress, like closure takes decades <laughs> on some of these issues. So I would describe it that you can, it's easy if you want to work really hard, put your head down to solve some of like the smaller niche issues. Some of these larger issues, I have found that the dirty maps and the dirty money keep us from taking them on. And I'll give you an example. So when I was a freshman, I passed, I had more bills signed into law than any other Democrat and I was in the minority. So I worked a lot with Republicans, uh, including one that helped our Filipino community here as Typhoon Haiyan wiped out the Philippines and it was a tax incentive bill for people to you know, give uh, you know, charity dollars to foundations that would help over there and it just incentivized that to help an allied nation. So you know, I worked on a tax bill, I worked on something as easy as naming a post office after a local veteran. On the bigger stuff is where you see the money pour in. San Francisco Chronicle, about five years ago, had this six-part series on rare earth elements. We're starting to hear about them again. Rare earth elements are used in so many of the devices we rely on, from laptops to cell phones, jet engines, anti-missile systems. And the Chinese, at the time and still today, controlled about 95 plus percent of the exports and they were continuing to choke off the exports to raise the cost or force a US company to relocate over to China. The Chronicle found mines in the United States that we could safely use to get these rare earth elements. So it would bring down the cost for US manufacturers and not have to rely on China. I wrote legislation that you know, took about six months working with Republicans to create a program at the Department of Justice and even a loan guarantee program so businesses would go into the mines. The Republicans said, we like this program. Credit to Kevin McCarthy, who gave me a vote on it. He said, I'll take, if you take out the loan guarantee part, because Solyndra, right? Like dirty word for Republicans, loan guarantee, even though the program made more money than it lost, they didn't want anything with loan guarantees. We'll still create your program. We'll get the U.S. invested in rare earth elements. I was excited. It was a big issue. We were really having our lunch eaten by China on it. The day it came up for a vote, again, six months worth of work with the science committee chairman, Kevin McCarthy, the majority leader for the Republicans. The day of the vote, the Heritage Foundation and Club for Growth send out an alert to their members. And they tell them, call your member of Congress, tell them to vote against this new loan guarantee government program. Loan guarantees wasn't a part of it. Tell them to vote against it or they'll be scored negatively. Scored negatively is like a Washington speak for we will give them a bad letter grade and if their letter grade is so low, we will fund a more conservative candidate to run against them. So Kevin McCarthy said to me, he said, your bill's going to lose now. I suggest you just pull it. And I told him, I said, I, I think I can save this. And like, he was looking at a, a freshman lawmaker and he's probably like eye rolling, like, sure, go ahead, try, try and save this. He knew, he knew the influence of the money and I wanted to talk to my Republican friends eyeball to eyeball. And so the vote is going on. I'm scrambling on the floor telling them we can't lose to China. We want to get in the game in this. And the number of my colleagues who looked me in the eye and said, I like what you're trying to do. I'm just afraid of how I'm going to get scored. Like it was a punch to the gut. And I thought if you're just going to turn over your vote to the club for growth, like just just give them your voting card. Like, that's what you're doing. But I saw the power of money in our system. And that on these big issues, until we strip down to the studs, the Citizens United ruling, until we get rid of, 
We have to do that next. And until we have independent redistricting in every single state, not just California, we're not going to get out of this rut. Well, somebody in the audience asked, how would you break the logjam that Mitch McConnell has created in the Senate? I think it's an excellent question because, um, you know, I think that we blame a lot in, in, in the yeah. Democratic stronghold that is California yeah. on Trump. But if you look at the way that McConnell has really held his caucus together, has, yeah. you know, held up the Merrick Garland um, nomination, um, has really just refused to bring up any legislation around gun control, for example, that yeah. might actually have, you know, like he is really holding the keys to a lot of the issues you're talking about. I mean, can Democrats really do anything, even if they have the White House, if the Senate is still in McConnell's hands? We have to beat him. We just have to beat him. That's like, there's him, no... like, like, do you think he, do you think he's vulnerable? Yes, I, yeah. I do think he's vulnerable. And I, I remember sitting next to Nancy Pelosi on a, a red eye a couple years ago and I was on the plane before she'd gotten on and I thought the seat next to me was going to be open and you know how that feeling is you're like yes but it's probably pretty good as the speaker she's the last person to get on the plane and I thought oh no oh no I know it so we all have to book a coach ticket and we can take upgrades if like one's available but you can't use taxpayer dollars for good reason even the speaker huh yes so she sits down next to me and I'm like oh boy um, again, like, You're like, don't screw it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just wanted to sleep and pass out. And I looked at her, I said, uh, Madam Speaker, um, can you sleep on these flights? And she said, no, God, no, I can never sleep. And I thought, oh God. And she's got like a <laughs> stack of materials. And I remember, you know, talking to her, I, I said, I said, Madam Speaker, do you think this is going to be a, a wave election? And she said, Eric, we don't wait for waves. We make waves. And we can't just sit and try and like think of ways to change the rules or change the constitution or hope that Mitch McConnell is going to come around and do the right thing. We just have to beat him in Kentucky, win in Colorado, Maine, Arizona, Texas, and put in place a Senate that will represent the will of the American people. That's the only way out is through. Quickly, and then I want to talk about student loan debt, because that's a big yeah. issue of yours. But I, I'm just curious, like, you were one of the youngest people we mentioned in Congress, but also in leadership. And now you've got some competition. There's, like, AOC yeah. and all these other... I mean, <laughs> how... I mean, on a serious note, like, how good of a job do you think the caucus is doing bringing in those voices? And are some of the schisms that those of yeah. us in the media talk about, do you feel them, or do you think that it's a pretty cohesive caucus? I don't feel them as, as much as I... Here, I think there's a lot of respect, you know, for each other in the caucus, but there's a frustration of my generation that on climate, on student loan debt, on income inequality, that we can't rely on, you know, the same old ideas to solve, you know, the same old problems, that it it does take, you know, new energy and new ideas. That's in part what inspired me, you know, to run for president was seeing 28 new members of Congress get elected in their 40s and under. I think that was the country signaling that it wanted new leadership uh, and, a, and a generation that would get this. And I think, to segue into your student loan question, yeah. when I went to Congress at, at 31, there were about 15 of us or so in our 40s and under. There, there weren't many of us there. Certainly not a lot of people like me who had student loan debt, who were the first in the family to go to college, a renter, in a place where the overwhelming majority of members were millionaires before they got there. I saw on the issue of student loan debt that the reason it wasn't being addressed was not because my colleagues didn't care about it. They were just disconnected from it. Most of them went to college at a time when college was affordable. Since 1980, however, the cost of college has gone up 306% with inflation adjusted. And if their kids went to college, if they're millionaires before they went to Congress, their kids didn't take on student loan debt. So it was just a disconnect. So Speaker Pelosi asked me in 2014 to take the younger members and create a group to go across the country, learn the issues, and be a voice for that generation. We called it Future Forum. I led that for the last five years. This election, we crossed 50, over 50 members in our 40s and under. Mm -hmm. I see an opportunity as president to work with the next generation Congress 
that can take on these issues of climate chaos, of student loan debt, of being safe in our community. And we have a Congress now that looks more like America. It's not there yet, and that's why I think you have to get rid of the dirty money and the dirty maps, but we have an opportunity to really make a difference on these issues. Do you feel like being out you know, front about your own personal life, you talk about being a renter, you talk about your student loan debt, there was an article in a local paper recently about some of your financial challenges, um, and we've seen this also with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yeah. talking about you know, how she couldn't afford to move to D.C. before yeah. she got sworn in, things like that. Do you find that people like like that on the campaign trail or do you ever get pushed back? Like, why should we trust yeah. you if you, you know, I think about that a lot. I, I want to be honest with people about, you know, my situation. I, in many ways have done better than my parents. You know, they, their dream was that I would go to college. Right. And my grandpa was a mechanic. My dad was a cop. You know, I'm in Congress running for president in many ways. I didn't do better than my parents. They, they were homeowners, you know, uh, at, a, at a time when, you know, my wife and I right now with a young family, we we're renting. We're renting in the East Bay. We'd love to be able to afford to live, you know, where we work. But like so many young families, Let me know if you we're paying off student loan yeah. debt. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, you know, we struggle to find affordable childcare options. And, and so that's the struggle we live. I just happen to think that that doesn't disqualify me. That makes me a better voice for the majority of Americans who are living like that. You know, to be fair, Elizabeth Warren, who's a little, little older than yeah. you, has been talking a lot about student I'm debt glad she as is. well. She's been a real leader on yeah, it. Yeah, um, she's talked about forgiving past mm-hmm. debt. I know you've talked about lowering interest rates um, or zero interest. T- talk about what, you, what your platform is on this issue and how, how are you going to pay for yeah. it? For Students on their way to college or in college now, we should have a college bargain. So if you do work study at a public university, you learn and you earn, and then you come out, take your first job, but also do community service hours for people in places that need it, that should add up to a debt-free education. I think in America, if you work for college, serve a community in need, college should work for you. So that's a college bargain. That's what we, we call it. For student loans, you know, the 40 million of us who have the debt, who are delaying starting a family, not becoming homeowners, not taking a good idea and starting a business, I would do two things. First, reduce the interest rate to zero. That's about $1.6 billion we could put back into the pockets of young people who would put it into the economy. Second is bipartisan legislation I've worked on that would allow employers to contribute tax-free to their employees' student loan debt. Again, the whole goal of being more money in more pockets at the end of every month. How do you pay for it? Well, first and foremost, when I look at the budget and the needs that we have on education, on healthcare, on our infrastructure needs, I believe we can be the strongest military in the world without spending more than the next seven countries do on their militaries. That's where I would first start. A trillion dollars is what we'll spend over the next 30 years just on nuclear weapons. I would seek to reduce that budget through nuclear treaties, putting us back in them, the strength of our alliances, uh, and just seeking to have no nuclear weapons in the world and believing that a leader in the United States could get us uh, to that point. Reforming the capital gains tax uh, is another way. Uh, No no employer or CEO or C-suite executive should pay a lower effective tax rate than the lowest paid employee in their building. I think that is another way uh, to take it. But what, one, other, one other idea that we have uh, is a campaign, and what I would implement as president, is to leverage the lending of the federal government. 90% of the student loans are backed by the federal government. So if you go to San Francisco State, or if you go to Stanford, or if you go to Trump University, (laughs) you get the same aid package. And we've never leveraged the lending in a way that we say, well, is that university graduating a student within four years? Is that student being placed in a job within six months? Are they keeping their tuition down or at least at a reasonable rate year after year? Are the administrator's salaries reasonable, or is it like the last president at Ohio State University making $7 million a year at a school that has the most student loan debt for a public university. 
the, most, the best actors under our plan would be most eligible for aid. The worst actors would be least eligible. And leveraging our lending, I think what you would do is you would drive better curriculum, lower tuition, and better outcomes for the students when they graduate. So we haven't talked at all really about the president or the Mueller report. You're on the House Intelligence Committee. So let's talk about some current events. First of all, just this week, you called for the House to initiate impeachment hearings. Um, You cited... I think we know where this crowd stands yeah. on that. Um, what, what you said really pushed you over the edge was the president's comments to ABC this week that he would potentially accept damaging information about an opponent in 2020 from a yeah. foreign government. Um, I know today you wrote a letter to the FBI director about the same issue, yeah. asking some questions. Um, what? There's been a lot that's come out over the yeah. past two and a half years. Like, what yeah. made this the tipping point? Yeah. The urgency. The urgency to act that this president was inviting the Russians to do exactly what they did in 2016. He was doing it in real time. And while I wanted to put together the fairest possible trial through evidence against the president before moving for impeachment, he has just left us with no option. He's willing to risk our democracy to benefit himself. And I I just don't see any other choice. I I look at it, you know, and I'm sure you have your own parenting methods with a six-year-old and a three-year-old. But with our son, we do the one, two, three method. If he's throwing toys or throwing tantrums, we count to three and then we take a toy. He's learned that he can just count to four and five and we think it's really cute. (laughs) So now we do three, two, one. (laughs) You're like, you can't get low. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So we do that because he has to see that there's consequences for his actions. Otherwise, he's going to get worse. And his seven-month-old sister is watching what we're going to do. And as she gets older and older, she will judge the standard of conduct based on how we treated him. And I think about future presidents. If we do nothing, the standard of conduct will be so low that you could never hold a president accountable for anything. And so even if it means impeaching him in the House and whatever politically happens in the Senate, maybe he's acquitted, I still think that setting a standard and saying we won't accept this is better than doing nothing. Other Democrats are concerned, including Adam Schiff, yeah. the chairman of House Intelligence, about about what you just talked about. About yes, that they're you know that they think that there should be sort of a line drawn in the sand on this, but also that what message would it send to future presidents if a Senate doesn't vote to convict? Is that? Yeah. It sounds like you think. I don't want to let the Senate off the hook. I feel like we're almost giving them an out. Like they should have to vote on this. That's the same reason I called for the vote when McCarthy said. Don't call for a vote. Like, why would I let them off the hook and let the outside groups win? They should at least, we should at least see their names and know how they vote. And I think the same thing is true. And I don't want to prejudge the outcome of the Senate. You, along with Chair- Chairman Schiff, have been yeah. sort of some of the people uh, most recognizable on cable yeah. news, often talking about the investigation, the Mueller investigation, your own investigations. Um, and I just wonder if you think as someone doing the explaining, though, that Democrats have done a good enough job sort of going back. Because I feel like there's been so many twists and turns that you can see how you're on there usually reacting to the news of the day. And when the president comes out after, you know, an almost 500-page report that resulted in, what, a dozen indictments, a bunch of guilty pleas, including people on his campaign. Like, do you think Democrats are doing a good enough job kind of talking about that? Yes. And again, we... I believe because we value the rule of law and we don't do Donald Trump justice, the rule of law will still stand after Donald Trump. It's going to be really frustrating. And I'm impatient. And I know many of you are impatient. But if we just do what Donald Trump does and jump to the conclusions without relying on the evidence, that's not America anymore, even if we end up on top. And I want to make sure that we're still a country you know, with laws. Now, I'm, yes, I'm reacting to the news I mean, of the day. And, you have and, to answer what but the I'm, I'm, also, I'm also learning and legislating along the way. And, and what I mean by that is I look at this in the framework of Watergate. There was an era of reformation after Watergate. We reformed the intelligence community. 
you know, the church committee put in place reforms on, you know, how the FBI and CIA could work. We cleaned up, in part, campaign finance laws because we saw the abuses there. So at each point that I've seen an abuse by this president, I've put a marker down, I've written legislation, and I've tried to address it. I'll give you an example. Over a year ago, I wrote legislation called Duty to Report. If you're a campaign or a candidate or a candidate's family and you get information from a foreign agent on your opponent, you have to tell the FBI. This president has benefited from a failure of imagination from prior Congresses who never thought that a campaign would act this way, so they never wrote laws that would protect us from what this president did. We have a responsibility to write laws to make sure future campaigns don't do this. So this week when the president said, I would do this again, to me, that shows the urgency of having that law passed. And I was, Where I was, is that legislation? I was excited yesterday. Speaker Pelosi said in her press conference that she'll be bringing duty to report the legislation I've written uh, up for a vote uh, very soon. And Kevin McCarthy said, and I'm going to hold him to this, he said in his following press conference that he would support Democratic legislation to put an onus on a campaign to tell the FBI. Do you think McConnell will bring it up for a vote? No. Okay. Just beat him. Just want to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just want to get that out there. Um, you've also called for the Attorney General Bill Barr to be impeached. Um, yeah. Again, again, they they yeah. support you there, but you know, and and I hate to sort of couch all of this in politics, but where will we find the time? <laughs> yeah, basically, I mean, impeach. You know, if if the House were to start impeachment of the president, I, I would assume that would be pretty all-consuming for your committees. Yeah. I, do you think both of those things should still be on the table? Yes. Again, I just again, it, I'm, it's rooted in a belief that no one is above the law. The president and the attorney general should not be treated differently than any single one of us would uh, in the community if we broke the law. And so I think you have to show that there's going to be consequences. Otherwise, lawlessness just prevails. And I'll give you an example. If, look what's happening in Alabama and Georgia and Missouri with these attacks on a woman's right to make her own health care decisions. Yes, in part, it's because there's a Supreme Court where these legislatures view that they would get a favorable ruling. But what would make someone believe that they could just pass a law that is so that so defies decades of precedent. It's lawlessness in the White House. It's, it's seeing that the president doesn't believe the laws apply to him. He tells the border commissioner, go ahead and enforce my immigration laws, and if you break the law, I'll pardon you. So that is seeping into you know, everyday America where people will start asking, like, why do I follow the law if this guy doesn't follow the law? That's why you have to show that no one is above the law. Yeah. Another issue that came up this week um, yeah. is the Hyde Amendment, which is the um, it basically bars federal funding for any abortion services. Yeah. Um, it's something that has been added on over the years to many funding bills, and yeah. many Democrats who oppose it yeah. end up voting for it. Right. I'm assuming you have yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, how do you think Democrats should be handling this? You know, where do you stand on this? Yeah. I, I've supported legislation that would repeal the Hyde Amendment in the past few Congresses. The way I view this is, as president, I would only appoint justices who would uphold the Roe precedent, uh, which, which women fought for decades ago and are shocked that they're still marching in the streets having to defend it. But I, again, I don't want us to aim so low that all we do is defend Supreme Court precedent. I want to lift the ban on women who don't have private health insurance from being able to make that decision. Uh, so repealing the Hyde Amendment, but also as a 38-year-old, I, I believe I can speak directly to young men in America and tell them that they have a responsibility to link arms and join young women uh, in this fight. Uh, and that, that, that's something you can do, I think, as a young president. All right, before our final question, I got one from the audience that I want to acknowledge, which is, as a high school student in my junior year, what advice would you give to youth about getting involved in important political issues? Use both hands. Reach up to find mentors. And, and people love to mentor. And you know, I, I know a lot of people don't want to bother someone else. And I always tell our interns, don't be a stranger when you leave. We don't know what you're up to. We only know if you keep us updated and we can help you if you do that. So always reach up and find 
a mentor. But don't forget to use your other hand. And as you start to you know, ascend, reach down and lift other people up. And you'll actually find that you become better at what you do and the fulfillment that you get and just the skills that you receive in mentoring uh, others. So reach up, find mentors, reach down, lift other people up. All right. We have one minute left. It is an informed tradition to ask the hardest question at the end, which is, what is your 60-second idea to change the world? Um, again, I, I would love to have something light and fun, and I do, but we truly are in a, a constitutional crisis, and everything that we work for and value is at risk. And if we don't have a rule of law, we don't have free speech, free ideas, and the freedom to dream that my parents relied upon when they worked hard and believed that their son could do better than them. I think right now with a lawless president, the only way to change that lawlessness and make sure it doesn't seep into every community in America is to lift the ban on a sitting president from being indicted. He shouldn't have immunity. He operates... He operates with immunity. He shouldn't have that immunity. I've pledged as president on day one, I would tell the attorney general, get rid of that ban. No future president should operate with that kind of immunity. There you have it. Congressman Eric Swalwell, thank you you, so much for joining us Thank you, each and every one of you. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun. Of course, yeah.